I remember going to a meeting and we met the real estate mogul and he owned one of the big soccer clubs in the Netherlands. It was a co-owner and he has a super busy schedule. So we get to the meeting and he's sitting there in the room on his own reading the newspaper. And it's stupid, but it impressed me so much because here's this guy, he's like super busy. He has a meeting with us. He's not only on time, he's early. And he's so early that he had time to kind of read the newspaper. And I was like, how is it possible that someone this busy is able to make time for us? It always stuck with me. And as we were talking, he basically said, do you know why I'm early to this meeting? I said, I have no idea. I said, you get up early? I don't know. And he's like, no, the moment you are in a position of power, it allows you to control the narrative of a meeting, of a setting, even you know, in strategizing for your business. I am always one step ahead. That's literally what he said. I make sure that I'm one step ahead in anything that I do. And I was in awe. I was like, this is amazing. This is such a life lesson. And yeah, I've always taken that with me in furthering my career. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 74 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Michael Linz. Michael is currently a partner at Golden Gate Ventures, a Singapore-based venture capital firm, which he joined in 2013 and is currently leading growth venture efforts there. He has helped raise over 60 million US dollars for Golden Gate Ventures and its portfolio companies and has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to meeting LPs and building relationships, not just in Southeast Asia, but also in Europe, the US and the Middle East. Prior to Golden Gate Ventures, Michael shares what it was like growing up in the Netherlands, his experience in co-founding an IT startup that began as a comparison site, then pivoted into being a data center. This was, of course, before the days of AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure. Michael then became the vice chairman of the Economic Development Board and sat on the same board as the CEOs from the likes of ING and Shell, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and also the head of the UN. We talked about all things startup, fundraising, the kind of founders and industries Michael is currently passionate about, and also how to get him as a mentor. If you have been enjoying these episodes, please don't forget to share. It really helps this episode to grow and reach more people. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. During my research, I realized that H78 was a pretty significant moment for you. And one of it was because you got your first computer from your dad and you yeah. took it apart. That was the first thing that you did. So yeah. what was the experience like? Why would you do that? I guess I was just a typical boy, just trying try to break things. And I'm always very curious about how things work. So yeah, the first thing I wanted to do is just understand, okay, it's like a big box, but there must be more happening inside that box. I want to see it. So I started taking it apart. And the funny thing was for the next few years, I actually kind of built my own computers just because I kind of like to configure it my own way, design it my own way. So that taking it apart actually led to me putting computers together and even working at a computer store for a few years as well. And your dad must have influenced you as well, right? I heard that he was in software as well. So he yes. must have encouraged you. But he, yeah. would, he probably was appalled that you took apart your first computer. That was it. Yeah, because we always had computers around the house. We always kind of talked about computers and, and even kind of making programs and, and developing. So, yeah, it was a big influence for me. 
Incredible. And you also started doing martial arts at the time. What was that like? Because you end up being on the national team for karate. Yeah, it's um, been such a big influence in my life. And I always wanted to be a famous soccer player. And it, true story. So I wanted to join a club in uh, in the Netherlands. And my mom, she couldn't find the actual club for uh, training. So I missed the first training because I couldn't find the club and, and field. So I said, well, this is stupid. I'll do something else. One of my friends started judo. And he said, Mike, just come along. You might like it. And then through judo, I got into more martial arts and ended up doing karate for a very, very long time. Wasn't it also as a form of self-protection? Because your dad was saying that, oh, you were getting beaten up a lot at school. It wasn't so much self-protection. It was a lot about building confidence, you know, feeling good about yourself, learning about your body, understanding your own strength. So it was a lot about building confidence. And then it helped that I was able to defend myself as well. But yeah. So you end up going to university, you studied computer science and business admin. And I heard this funny story, age 19, you found out that university wasn't hard and you went to the dean to ask to be allowed to skip a grade. Yeah, it's funny. So I had to choose because at the end of my career in karate, I basically had to decide to either graduate or do karate professionally. So we were selected for the world championships in Cape Town, South Africa. And my dad said, nope, you're going to finish university. You're never going to get like a proper job doing karate, like get a degree at least, and then you can make your own choices. So I decided to not go to the world champs and sort of finish university. But then I was so upset because the first two years, it felt relatively easy. So me and I had a good friend, Richard, and a few others. So we went to the dean and said, is there a way that we can speed this up? And I think they must have thought we were crazy. And he was like, that doesn't make any sense. He said, but what we can do is if you do these sort of advanced assignments and if you guys all ace it, well, then we can shorten the second year of university, which basically made us skip a class. So we all aced, the, the, it wasn't too hard. We all aced the assignments. And yeah, we accelerated our second year. I was just turning 20 and I finished university relatively early. So you finished university early. How do you end up in an insurance company as your first job? Oh, yeah, because the funny thing was, you always had to kind of make your thesis on a certain topic. And I wanted to do it about IT auditing, like the most boring topic ever. But it had some really intricate sides to it. But then you had to find a company that wants to endorse uh, your research. And through a mutual friend, I got in contact with ING. And ING had a big subsidiary, uh, which is an insurance company in the Netherlands. So they effectively sponsored my thesis and my research. And they said, this is really good. We actually want to see if we can implement parts of it in our organization. They offered me a job. So right out of university, I worked, worked for an insurance company for the first few years. And you learned through that, that you never wanted to work for a corporate again. Why was that? How soon did that realization come? Relatively fast. I, I think there were, there were a few things that I didn't particularly like. I think that the first thing was the organization is so big, right? And, and I think for some People, they go to work, they do what they need to do and they leave. And, and that's basically it. I just couldn't understand that that was it. You start at nine, you, you end at five, you go home, you make dinner and then you sleep and you do it over the next day again. I said, there must be more to life. And then the second thing was, I guess, sort of the same anxiousness that I felt when I was in university. So I went to management and said, okay, how do I get into management? Because I'm not going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I want to fast track to either a director position or even better, the board. And everyone's like, no, yo, there's a process to this. And you have to kind of wait years and then get gray hairs and grow old. And then you kind of get into the position. 
So I was like, no, this, that's not for me. They had one specific project, which was pretty cool. They were actually building one of the first internet insurance companies in the Netherlands. So I was able to kind of be part of that program for a few years, but then said, that's it. That's the last thing I'm going to do. And, and then I, I left to build my own company. I mean, when you left, you actually sold your house and your car, right? To start it with yeah. two old friends. Yeah, because I had no savings whatsoever. So <laughs> were you worried? I mean, you were selling everything. Yes, I was relatively concerned. But yeah, I mean, I was, you know, it was relatively easy because I didn't have any kids. So, you know, I had a house, had a car. I said, that's material things. If I work hard enough, I can always buy a house at a later age. So that, that should be fine. But I did want to have a little bit of a kind of smaller cushion in case things go sour with the job. So I decided to sell the house and the car and put that money into the business. So at least, you know, I could pay rent and have a bit of a, a little bit of a salary while I was building the business. Do you go into it thinking I'm going to give it go for five years and if it doesn't work, I'm going to pull out? No, actually, when we started the company and had two co-founders, we were thinking of, I'm going to do this like for a very long time. That was the idea. So after three years, we, we kind of gained some success and then we kind of knew, okay, this is actually going to work. So this should be fine in terms of making it a mature business. We were also very fortunate. We didn't have any outside funding. So everything was funded by ourselves that that made life slightly easier. But then in year six, we acquired one company and then we got an acquisition offer. I felt a bit exhausted after year six, year seven. So I decided, you know, if this offer allows me to be bought out as a founder, I'm, I'm more than happy to kind of take that offer and focus on other things in life. So just before you took that offer, the business actually started out as a comparison site, right? And then became yes. a data center, which is totally different. What was that pivot like? How did it come about? Yeah, the comparison site was the idea of uh, one of my co-founders because he basically said, Mike, you've built this for the insurance company. We should build this like for everything, like an everything comparison site was his big idea. And he was very, very sales driven. But the moment I spoke with his brother, who was the other co-founder, we noticed that I didn't have any legs. This was in 99, 2000. So this is literally like the, the start of the dot-com bubble. So it wasn't the best time to start a business to consumer company. But then the one thing I was always driven by was helping organizations out. It, it came back to the research that I did with, with IT auditing. So we initially started to, to do some consulting for SMEs on the IT side. And we noticed that everyone was done with their IT team, they said they're way too expensive. Why can't I like outsource this to someone and do it to have it done for me? And that's how we started our data center. And that was the business that really took off and, and became a success. So this was your version of Google Cloud before it became? Literally, yeah, yeah. I wish we would have known this. <laughs> would have stuck around a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. So you got bought out. Do you have any plans? What are we going to do next? Not necessarily, but I like the consulting part of our business. So besides the data center, we did have a lot of strategic IT consulting that we did as well. It helped us pay the bills initially before launching the data center as a service. And I like the consulting part. So I said, for the time being, what I can do is I can just be a consultant on my own. So I just advised like a lot of startup founders that were asking for either fundraising help or help on strategy for their business as they were expanding their company. But in that same year, because I was doing so much advisory work and speaking at events, I was asked by the Dutch prime minister and the secretary of finance. Um, and they basically said, we're launching an economic development board and we're looking for a vice chairman, which would be keen to kind of take on that role. And I was like, of course, super honored to be asked. So I rolled into becoming this vice chairman for this board for four years. And in the meantime, did some investing and some, some consulting as well. 
It sounds like a tremendous opportunity because you got to work with the top CEOs of the country, right? In Netherlands, like Shell, Unilever, ING. What kind of learnings did you gain from that? Anything that stands out? Yeah, I think looking back, in all fairness, it felt like everything always would would fall into place. Like from ING to building the company to becoming his advisor and becoming vice chairman. So I think at the start, I was slightly arrogant. Like, look at me. They want me for this position. I must be amazing. I learned really fast to humble myself, luckily. (laughs) So I noticed that all of these people had so much experience. They were entrepreneurs themselves. They've built multinational companies over decades, or they were big CEOs, or they were in government. So the prime minister of New Zealand was on the board. Um, Also, they had a separate 5G board with international members. The head of the UN at that time, Rudy Lubbers, was also on the board as well. So it was very impressive to be part of that community. And I noticed that whilst I was getting closer to these people and and having more conversations, I was like, oh man, I'm just going to take every opportunity to learn and I want to listen. I'm just going to sit down and, and listen and learn as much as I can. So that was an amazing time. And what were the main things that happened during that period? Because you guys were discussing about how to bring the ecosystem to the next level, right? Yeah, I think one of the things that we did, we started a young economic development board and allowed for a lot of young, amazing talents in the Netherlands to be part of the board and develop themselves, but also represent a younger generation of up and coming CEOs and people in government, et cetera. I remember going to a meeting and we met the real estate mogul and he owned one of the big soccer clubs in the Netherlands. It was a co-owner and he has a super busy schedule. So we get to the meeting and he's sitting there in the room on his own, reading the newspaper. And it's stupid, but it impressed me so much because here's this guy, he's like super busy. He has a meeting with us. He's not only on time, he's early. And he's so early that he had time to kind of read the newspaper. And I was like, how is it possible that someone this busy is able to make time for us? And it always it always stuck with me. And as we were talking, he basically said, do you know why I'm early to this meeting? I said, I have no idea. I said, you get up early? I don't know. And he's like, no, the moment you are in a position of power, it allows you to control the narrative of a meeting, of a setting, even, you know, in strategizing for your business. He said, I am always one step ahead. That's literally what he said. I make sure that I'm one step ahead in anything that I do. And I was in awe. I was like, this this is amazing. This is such such a life lesson. And yeah, I've, I've always taken that with me in furthering my career. So I suppose anyone who wants an investment from you would know, come early to a meeting, no matter what. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Yeah, at least at least definitely try to be on time. It just sets a very different expectation if you present yourself in this way. I also read that you were doing investments at the time and your first investment lost you lots of money because you had no idea what investing was about. Yeah, I guess the natural thing for me after the company we had was to give back in in multiple ways. And and one is being an advisor and then two is also investing in businesses. I think the biggest thing that I've learned from that time is the moment you invest in industries that you don't have knowledge of or a background in, it becomes very difficult to kind of value the actual business and, and understanding what does growth look like? I've always been in tech almost all my life. The most natural thing would have been for me to invest in other tech companies. But I, I said, no, I'm just going to invest in fashion and in 
LED lighting companies and all kinds of businesses. I just noticed over time that it makes it very difficult to value these companies. And all these entrepreneurs were amazing on their own. If you're in the lighting industry, that industry has its own struggles and its own different ways of doing things, its own little community. It's very hard as an outsider to kind of understand that community if you're not sort of really in it or really understand the business behind it. Because you're very big about focus, right? For all your founders, you must be very focused. Is this where your obsession with focus started? Because you realize that as you were going to find more investors, they also find it very hard to invest because it was such a random portfolio of companies too. Yeah. The one thing that I, I learned after those investments, we, we were speaking to a, a large secondary fund that was looking to buy out our entire portfolio. And the biggest question for them was, what is your thesis on the investment landscape, these industries? Why have you picked this company versus this company? So our thesis was, we wanted to look at the entrepreneurs behind the businesses. So we were very entrepreneur founder heavy and not so much thesis driven. And then I understood why some of these funds are like hyper-focused on either a region or an industry or a certain stage and really understood that, yeah, focus is is so incredibly valuable. And I've, I've always learned this over time. The moment you're able to nail one thing extremely well, it allows you to make more space to do other things. The moment you do like a lot of things at the same time and you haven't mastered one of them, you're never going to create like additional outsized value. Didn't you have a friend called Steph who told you about this random course at Harvard? Yeah, it's, it's true. He decided to do an executive course at Harvard and he literally told me, he said, man, this was such a good experience for me and you have to fork out a little bit of money, but it's it's really valuable in terms of the network and just the classes, the content is really good. And this is me sometimes like on a whim, I decided to sign up for one of the courses. And the good thing was that back in the days, the courses were actually in person, not online or virtual. So I spent a little bit of time in Massachusetts, Boston um, at the Harvard campus. You're with your class, like day in, day out. You start at six in the morning or six thirty in the morning. You have group breakfast, then you work on a business case, and then the classes start. And then you you tend to uh, spend time with the class after class for you know dinner or drinks after. So it was a really good experience, and it, it just opened up an entirely new network for me as well. Were you not tempted to stay back in the states because you end up going to Singapore instead? Yeah, I wasn't set on where to go next. I think I was thinking about what is going to be the next step in my career. And I did want to join a fund, but hadn't thought about where or kind of which region. This was pure coincidence that 2012, one of my classmates who was in Singapore said, hey, there's, there's actually stuff going on here in Singapore and in the region. You should definitely check it out on a whim bought a ticket to Singapore and wanted to understand what is happening here and, and what does the investment landscape look like. So you end up speaking with Jeff and Vinny and solidified your decision to come to Singapore. So it sounds like they really said a lot of things that really hit you. So what were some of the things that really convinced you that this was the place to come to? So I think I'm very on who's the person behind the idea. And if there's a connection or if it feels good, I'm sort of keen to go all in. And I think it was with Vinny and Jeff similar where we had a initial talk and that was good. And, and, and we, ha- we talked about what was happening in the ecosystem and how diverse it was and how it's still very early compared to China and India and how the diversity in the ecosystem allows for a lot of growth over time, but also the, the risk of trying because there weren't a lot of funds around. If you look at it now versus 10 years ago, it's entirely different. So it was kind of a big leap of faith. But again, I felt good about the connection with it felt like they had their hearts in the right place. So I said, let's give it a go. And then 
in the first year, I was kind of helping more on the fundraising side. So it allowed me to also get to know them better and for them to get to know me better as well before officially jumping in and, and working together. Weren't you thinking after that conversation, how can I be helpful? And then you were helping one of those companies to fundraise and you found a family friend who wanted to invest with your family office. So all those connections came in. Yeah, true. So the first thing I always try to do is if I can be of value to a group or a community or an organization, I'll try to do so. It's easy to say I'm amazing at X, Y, and Z, and you don't show it. I try to at least show it first and then just prove myself. So my first question was, where can I be helpful? And they had a few companies that were actually fundraising at that point in time. I had a network of friends and and family offices that were looking to invest more into Asia, and they didn't have network or access to Southeast Asia. So it was kind of an ideal timing in that moment. So I want to step back a little bit. You make it sound as though moving to Singapore was not that hard, but it was quite a big decision. You just had a baby. The conversation with your wife must have been quite hard. Yeah, it was definitely a, a rough period because my wife didn't want to move to Singapore just yet. So first of all, she's like, Who, who's Vinny and Jeff? I have no, <laughs> no idea who these guys are. And you're betting our entire future on, on these two folks. Yeah, and we just had Lana, our daughter. She was just one. So I decided initially to fly back and forth between Singapore and, and the Netherlands, which was not easy because it's a 12-hour flight. And doing that every two weeks is pretty intense. But I, I just believed in the opportunity. I, I thought something was there. I felt there was more opportunity here than there was back in Europe. So I literally said, we should give it a chance and give it a try. Eventually, she understood that that flying back and forth wasn't like sustainable <laughs> over time. So yeah, it's convinced her to to give it a try. And yeah, the first few years, it wasn't very smoothly. She didn't like it at all. But yeah, you know, got to build her own community, got her own friends. And yeah, eventually she loved it. And our son is born here, makes it very different. But yeah, it wasn't easy for a few years. As you said, your role initially was to fundraise for Golden Gate Ventures. You helped to raise over $60 million. And I read that In the early days, you actually felt like an imposter. So how did you figure those first days out and find your footing? Yeah, it's it's funny. I still remember when um, Vinny had a speaking gig in Jakarta for E27. And, uh, and Vinny said, hey, Mike, maybe, you know, to kind of position yourself, why don't you go do the speaking gig? And I'll say, I'll have to pass and then you can go in my place. And I felt so awkward because I was like, dude, I, I just got here. <laughs> like, like, what am I talking about? And he's like, no, just look at your background. You're, you've been an entrepreneur, you've fundraised, you've invested in companies in a different market, but the experience you have, you can translate that to the founders here. I was like, oh yeah, that may actually makes sense. So I just spoke about my experience as, as a founder, investor, being even in a government-related entity as well. So I took that, but it still felt like I'm not from here. I have... I have done have the experience of being an investor here. It feels like everyone around me has every right to be here and I'm not. So that felt a bit awkward. The community was very welcoming. That was helpful. The second thing I would say is that just by doing a lot of speaking, people actually said your experience is interesting because it's different and you are different to any other investor you've spoken with. So that gave me a bit, of, bit more confidence to not feel like I'm an imposter here. And what was the experience like trying to get through the door to speaking to Asia? Because it's very family driven, isn't it? Well, I think, of course, the brand helped. If you can say you're a partner at Golden Gate Ventures, people tend to take a meeting. Even back then, when you were still very young? Yeah, I felt like even in the first few years, I think that the team did an amazing job in positioning themselves and, and marketing the brand. I guess across Asia, it was welcoming. There were instances where 
I would show up for a meeting and people were surprised. <laughs> like, like, who are you again? So that did happen a number of times. But I knew why I was in the meeting and I felt like I have a good story to tell you. We have an amazing opportunity, so you should listen. So I did try to be convincing and, and very confident in going into those meetings. It, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always easy. So sometimes you felt like, oh, I'm not being taken seriously, maybe for a number of reasons. But yeah, you just have to kind of pull through and keep repeating your story and, and keep knocking on doors. And you have to keep doing that for years, right? Before they even give you the first paycheck. Yes. Yeah. We've had LPs that I've spoken with for two, three years before they read the first check. Yeah. I heard that story you shared about a Japanese company that you met for three years and yeah. you just met and just talked about life and anything but business. Yeah. And it's, it was literally just building confidence. And for some of the families as well, like some families even say, yeah, I just want to get to know you better and, and understand your philosophy and who you are and, and how you act in life. So it, it happens that sometimes I go cycling with LP, sometimes it's playing golf, sometimes it's having a few dinners. I, I mean, for some of them, I even know their families because you build such a bond over time. And again, it's important for them if they commit to you for 10 years, life of a fund which effectively means that they, they really want to feel their trust and, and the relationship there. And you were also fundraising from different parts of the world, Middle East, Europe, States. There must be very different experience there. I just got back from Oman where for like a short roadshow. Yeah, it is different. I feel so enriched because you learn all the different customs and cultures and the way they do things. And even from a fundraising perspective, like how different is fundraising in Japan or Korea versus Indonesia or Singapore or the Middle East, like the different customs. In Europe, if I go fundraising, I can be fairly direct because most European countries are direct. And you're Dutch, uh, Dutch. so you're direct. Too. Yeah, yeah. So that helps. So yeah, if, if I'm in Germany or in London, it's a relatively straightforward, easy conversation or even in France. Yeah, Middle East is a little bit more whining and dying. It's funny, it's, it's literally halfway between Europe and Asia. And even in the way they look at fundraising, it feels similar. Yeah, and here in Asia, although it's different within the countries, but yeah, it's more relationship building than anything else. You said there was a difference between, say, Japan and Korea. What are the differences like? Mm, I would say that the ones that take the most time would definitely be Japan. It's really about getting through the hierarchy. It's really about building a long-term relationship, having conversations with different parts in the organization. It's very important. Korea is a bit more transactional from a fundraising perspective. I think that the larger Korean corporates have an idea of, okay, in our strategy, we want to have allocation in Southeast Asia. So that makes it slightly easier to convince them to invest. So it's slightly more transactional, I would say. And what about the ecosystem itself? Because when you came, it's very different from what it's like now. What is the shift that you've witnessed in terms of just people looking at startups? So much has happened in, in the past 10 years. I'm guessing the maturity of founders, I think that has changed a lot. Almost like if you go back nine, 10 years ago, founders almost had to explain themselves why they were building this company. And now it's normal. If my neighbor starts a company, we're like, oh, awesome. You know, good luck to you. And and like nine, 10 years ago, it was a different conversation. Why would you start a company? Why don't you just get a job at a big firm or something? So that has changed. So it's normalized. You had to convince your own people as well to invest in Southeast Asia, right? They were asking yeah. the same question. Why? Yeah. Like nine, 10 years ago, people were like, concerned about political risk. Yeah, look at Indonesia and, and look at Thailand and there's so much happening. Don't you feel it's risky? And like, we've never had anything 
even close to political risk when it comes to investing in tech companies. So it's really funny the perception uh, that people have from the outside looking in. So yeah, you had to convince them, you know, why you're here and, and, and why you see this big opportunity. Like now it's the other way around. People are saying, oh, it's an amazing opportunity. It makes so much sense that you guys invested here. But yeah, it was a long journey. And for founders, it's fairly similar. If you look at the companies that were raising a series nine years ago versus company that are raising a series A now, that's vastly different. The valuations are way higher. It's easier to get institutional money to back these companies. So yeah, that has changed a lot. Were you saying that that shift came around the 2015, 2016? It was still fairly early, but what happened in 2015, more funds like ourselves, Open Space, East Ventures, Jungle, Monks Hill, we were all in the market raising either our second or our first like proper institutional fund. And that actually led to this more attention on the region. And I'm guessing if you have seven or eight fund managers knocking on your door, raising for their fund, those LPs must think, oh, there must be something here. So this can't be a coincidence. So that was a big part of it. And it allowed also the companies behind the funds or in the portfolio of these to raise of you know these similar institutions. So that was helpful. I think what also happened was 2015, 16 was still a very good year in terms of venture for India. So a lot of investors that were looking at India were also with one eye kind of looking at Southeast Asia. You know, Sequoia, India was making investments here. They think they invested in Gojek at the time. So there was some buzz, but if you look at it now versus then, it was still relatively early days. And then you had the actual exits around 2017, 2018 as well. So that people thought there was a real opportunity here. Yeah, because I think prior to that, the largest exit prior must have been Vicky. I think Vicky was acquired by Rakuten for the 200 million. And that was, of course, a big sensation because it was early days and we didn't have any big exits. I think when Gojek started making acquisitions, I think Grab becoming more acquisitive as well. We were saying, oh yeah, I think it, this looks like, for instance, what happened in China, where either you know, Baba or Tencent or JD were making acquisitions. So we saw kind of similar trajectories and those exits were very necessary also to kind of show to the LPs that, hey, we can actually make money with uh, investing in these companies. I suppose this is a question everyone asks you all the time. As a VC, what were you looking for? I imagine you were looking at the people, the founders, the yeah. investment. What were you looking for? It would be 70% people driven because one, the companies are early, of course. There is some comparison because if you look at an e-commerce model or a payments gateway model or like a first mile logistics model, we can compare some metrics to, for instance, China or India and say, hey, there's there's some there's a bit of a benchmarking that we can do here. Although there's, there's still like so many differences in those markets. So that helps. We look for scalability in general. I tell founders all the time. You have to imagine that every single dollar that we invest in your business, it has to return five, six, uh, perhaps 10x for us, which means that you need outsized growth over time for us to make this work. So even if you have an amazing business and you're an amazing founder, but it's not scalable, it doesn't make sense for us to invest. So we do look at is the founding team or are the founders able to create a business that is outsized and not only create it, but also run it as a CEO because you're a founder initially and you become a CEO over time. And when that happens, your dynamic as a business is different. You have different sites, different stakeholders, uh, whether it's uh, business partners, investors, government, if you're regulated, that all changes over time, which means that the founder that you was in year one, you're going to be a different person in year or six, seven or eight. So we're kind of looking for 
do we think these people have the ability to grow into these into these roles over time? And then from a business standpoint, I think focus is again important. We like founders that are laser focused on building a business. And it doesn't matter if it's a singular business at first. So if you have like one product, but if you have a product that does amazingly well in those first few years, again, then you'll have room to do other stuff over time. I always get nervous when founders explain to me like 11 different things in one pitch. Because the question is, how can you find time in a day to make 11 amazing businesses at the same time? Just going to be very, very difficult. So founder personality, ability to scale, ability to execute, and a typical scalable model in itself is, is what is important to us. And isn't local knowledge something that you really prioritize as well? Because you really need, need to know the local market in order to do anything. And especially in places like Indonesia, they are focused on the country first. Whereas in, say, Malaysia, Singapore, you look more out from day one. Yeah, it's just the reason why I say 95% of our portfolio are founders that have been here for a long time or are local from Indonesian or, or Vietnamese or, or Malaysian. And that is crucial for us. We've had a number of companies pitch us and said, I'm from London, but I'm relocating here and building a business here. I was like, that's amazing. But it's also important for us that you understand those little intricacies when you're expanding from Indonesia to Vietnam and understand how vastly different those two countries are. And building a team in Vietnam is entirely different than building a team in Singapore, for example. So all those things are, are important to us that people understand what it means to build a business there. Are there particular founders that make you sit up? You always meet amazing founders over the years, and it's hard to predict when you meet them. But yeah, there are certain founders that intrigue you. I think the best ones, at least for me, are the ones that understand the parts that they're not good at. So many times speaking to a founder and they would say, yeah, Mike, you ask me to do X, Y, and Z. I'll do it with my eyes closed. Ask me to do A, B, and C. That's none of my ballparks. I need someone else to help me fill in those gaps. And I think it's important because it shows me that you have uh, self-knowledge, which is important as a founder. And I think the ones that are laser focused are the ones that I always be impressed by, that they're just not distracted. They're just so focused on just building their business. And the one example that I tend to use very often is others, of course, but I would say Aaron Tan of, of Caro is one of them. Moses of Zendit is another one who I feel is like incredibly focused on just getting the business off the ground and, and getting it done. Cheng Wen from Ninja Van, similar. Gillian from Homage, she's amazing in terms of this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this is how I'm going to do it. You need to help me here and here. The rest I'll take care of. I just love that confidence. It sounds very much like you're not just giving them the money and letting them go. You are very involved in these companies. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Actually, the best founders, they don't need as much involvement as we sometimes would like to think they need. And you have founders that are like, Mike, just leave me alone. I, I got this. I'll come to you when I need help. And then they do. They ask specific questions like, Mike, I want to talk to this insurance company. They're in Europe. Help me make an introduction. So that does happen. Yeah, we, we do try to be involved and be as helpful as we can, whether it's on the talent side, whether it's on fundraising, making introductions. Yeah, we do try to be helpful as, as much as we can. How do you tend to get your deal flow? Are you open to cold pitches? What makes it stand out? Because I think you look at over a thousand companies a year, right? That's a lot to get through. Yeah, true. I mean, a lot of it is comes through cold emails. Of course, there's a lot through our network. It's either other founders, it is sometimes RLPs even, but I think the majority of our deal flow is our own outbound. We spend a lot of time doing research on the ecosystem and understanding, oh yeah, who's leaving this company is going where, oh, 
this person changed on LinkedIn. Are they building something on their own? Like, why is there stealth in their description? So we try to look for stuff that allows us to find founders early. If I want to get your attention, I should just put stealth. Put, put stealth in your LinkedIn. They're like, oh, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Something's happening there. So we, we try to pay attention and just understand where people are moving, how they're moving, who's doing what. So let's give an example. Typically, if, for instance, one social commerce company popping up, there are seven or eight others as well. So we really try to understand what is happening in this trend and find the best founders. And we find them to our network. And being here in the past 10 years as a firm, you've built a network across the region. So you tend to hear things relatively early. Are there particular mistakes that come to mind just in terms of investment that you've learned? One thing that I've learned is allocation is important. So if you invest in a business and you don't have enough ownership, even if it's a minority, but you don't have enough ownership to make sense for your investment thesis, you have to fix that. I've learned so many times that if you look at the companies that returned the best for some funds, it tends to be where you have gotten the allocation right. So that's important. I think the other thing is have confidence in your own investment thesis. I think the worst thing you can do as an investor is only follow trends and just try to piggyback off of others. What is your own conviction as an investor? That's the one thing that I've learned over the years, and it's a big mistake not to have one. So that's important. Yeah, um, overestimating yourself. I, I think it doesn't matter if you've been successful or not, you have to stay hungry and humbled because you're always learning. You know, I'm 46. I still learn every single day. It just doesn't change. So having that hunger and being eager to learn, I'm eager to learn from kids that are 19 years old. I'm always happy to listen and understand what goes on in their world and things that I just don't know. Speaking of investment thesis, what is yours and has it changed over time? No, I'm guess I'm one of the older cats in the business. There's certain business principles that never change. And for me, whether it's a local business, a regional one or global, really understanding your business is important. I, I think understanding what scalability means is important as well. It is not easy to build something and do the same thing 100x. It's really hard. That's a big lesson for me in terms of my investment thesis, really understanding what does it take to get to 100x. I always look for that in a business and that has never changed. The nuance change, for instance, you know, you look at new developments, whether it's NFT or Web3 or different ways of investing at the moment, whether it's tokenized or equity, but in terms of the business principles, that don't change for me. Are there particular areas that interest you right now? Yes, I'd say the health tech space is interesting. From a wellness perspective, I think technology is going to be an enabler for a lot of people to live more healthier and, and be more conscious of their own wellness. So that's one thing I'm, I'm very intrigued by. I think I have every single wearable on the planet just to try out and, and test and learn and compare the data. So I think that that's one. Financial inclusion is an overused term, but I'm intrigued by how can we make more equally spread over larger communities and how can we use technology for it. So, you know, earned wage access is one example where you allow folks to use their salary for different ways and sort of automate it, whether it's for savings, for purchase, for school fees, like anything you can do to make people that have lower wages utilize their salary and actually make them more money as opposed to less money and make sure that they're taking less advantage of them. I'm very intrigued by art and, and how technology and art combine. I'm investing in NFTs to learn. It's funny to me, just sitting on Discord and seeing all these kids talk. It's hilarious, but I'm learning a lot as well. There are a lot of people as well who are releasing very successful entities in this space, in this region. 
Exactly. That's the other thing. The one thing that I'm excited about is Web3 NFT allows Southeast Asia to position themselves. Because I think like if you look at the, the Philippines or Indo or Singapore, there's, there's so much happening in the NFT space. So that's things that I find interesting at this moment. I'm interviewing some of those people who have just released NFTs in this space right after you. So oh, exciting. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about some of your existing portfolio companies. You mentioned, say, Ninja Van. I wonder, they are logistics company. They must have gone through a very interesting experience during the pandemic. What's it like working with them? We've luckily stayed in touch with the leadership team during the pandemic. I think Ninja Van is an example. The pandemic has worked for them, although it was a very, very, of course, dark time for a lot of people. It worked for them in terms of their business. Everyone was so dependent on buying things online and having it delivered to their homes. This is public. They've 3x their revenue in 2020, continuing to show growth in 2021. Despite the growth, they've stayed laser focused on just building their business, building a better infrastructure. How can we make things smarter? How can we make the consumer experience better? So it's, it's impressive that even if you have success, you're still looking to drive business and, and try to make it better. In a more general sense, how has the pandemic impacted your portfolio companies? How have you assisted them during this period? I'd say at, at the start of the pandemic, like everyone else, we were all concerned and because we had no idea where this was going. So the biggest question we had was, do we have enough runway for all of our companies to get through the pandemic? That was the initial question. That was in May of 2020. A lot of discussions internally, like talking on a regular basis with the founders. And then we noticed in September, like, oh my goodness, there's such a tailwind because everyone is looking to invest in tech. Most of our companies have no issues fundraising whatsoever. So yeah, I think they're going to be, <laughs> they're going to be okay. So we shifted from um, sort of a... Um, cautious approach to, hey, let's kind of take this tailwind and see if we can fundraise for, for, for a lot of our companies. So a lot of our companies were actually successful in fundraising. For the ones that weren't, we try to put in some extra effort to get sort of new investors on board, find fresh capital for the teams. So yeah, it was a bit of a shift. And I think the one thing we learned was just to stay flexible and just be on your toes all the time. And that really helped us manage the portfolio kind of through this period. But in all fairness, Q3 of 2020, up until end of last year, it's been a tailwind for technology. Uh, apart from the public markets, in the private markets, there's been a lot of investments. We say it's going to change, has changed the way that you are fundraising for your OVC as well, because in 2019, you took over 80 flights, right? And now you've realized you don't actually need to go and meet people in person and still raise the funds. Yeah, I had this funny discussion. I was in Korea a month ago. So I was speaking with one of our existing investors and met a bunch of potential investors as well. Everyone appreciated and literally everyone said at the start of the meeting, like, Mike, thanks so much for coming down to Korea and see us in person. Of course, we fundraise over Zoom and, and close investors over Zoom. But having that personal one-on-one -on -one connection, and I'll give an example. I was in Oman a week ago and I was having dinner. During dinner, someone said, hey, Mike, I want you to meet someone else. He's here. And I think you guys should be co-investing at some point in time. This wouldn't have happened if I would have done just a Zoom call. So having those serendipitous you know, meetings, it's fun. One thing though, I will never go back to doing over 80 flights in a year because it is physically exhausting <laughs> and it's not healthy. So I'll be more conscious about the flights that I take, the flights that I don't take. I would say, Let's just do a call if it's possible. But I would, of course, still travel. I'm just going to be a bit more focused and, and pay more attention to, does it make sense to actually make this trip, yes or no? And on a more personal level, when the pandemic hit, you were quite open about the fact that you, know, you felt like you had to overcompensate. You felt like you were not doing anything. 
Yeah, it's if you go from flying all over the world to literally no flights whatsoever, it's a bit of a gap in, in terms of, oh man, there's no output. Because if you're having those one-to-one -one meetings, if you're, you're meeting folks, there's always something you're doing or you're, you feel very productive. Not traveling around was like, what am I doing? Of course, you have like a lot of work that you can do. You, you can go through emails, but we did a lot of sessions with our partners. We had founders workshops that we did online with partners like Cooley. We had a number of events for the portfolio, a number of events just for the, the general ecosystem. So we were able to kind of also give back and then in terms of work, I did a lot of desk research, which I had finally had time for. So yeah, you just do your work in a different way, I guess. I wanted to ask two questions more from a founder perspective. We talked a lot about focus. I wonder if you tend to give your founders some kind of a framework just to stay focused, because it's easy to say, I need to stay focused, but how do you actually do that? I'm not sure if it's a framework, but I guess it's more experience that I then try to share. The only way I can do it is when I talk about the business, I try to ask questions in a direction where... Okay, if you are launching a new product, just for example, right? So you're, you have your existing one, you feel your existing product is not generating enough growth. So what you do is, hey, this is not working. I'm going to do something else. My question is always, okay, let's go back to your first product. Analyze what is it that is not working? Because the danger is if you launch your second product and you kind of do the same thing, it isn't going to work neither. So really understand why that first thing is not working. And is there anything that you can fix on this first product to actually make it work? Because we tend to assume if you start something new, because it gives you new energy, it gives you new hope, you think, oh, yeah, this is definitely going to work. But I've now learned that spending time on that first thing that you felt like is not going to work could actually make it work. So I'm really trying to emphasize on you shouldn't just throw away all the effort and time you spent on this first product by saying, I'll do something new. Because the danger is once that energy goes away from your new initiative, you're going to go do another thing just to get that new energy kick again. It's like grass is always greener kind of a conversation. So I always try to help them focus on work on that initial product. Have you done everything that you possibly can to make it work? And if that's the case, of course, you can always say, listen, you have to pivot um, into a different direction, which is fine. But don't do it because you feel like, oh, it's not working. I have to move on. Do the work to actually make it work. And if it really doesn't, then you can move on. You've said before that one of the things that you lacked when you were your founder yourself was mentors. And that's really, really important. So do you have any advice for founders just in terms of finding good mentors for themselves? Yeah, it's a very simple one. Just reach out to people. We tend to wait until something happens to us. The best thing you can do is just be one step ahead. And one step ahead is just reaching out and taking that first step. So if you think someone in your community or your network or someone that you look up to and you want them as a mentor, just ask. I've had a lady from the UK. She listened to a podcast and heard me speak and she reached out over LinkedIn and she was like, I would love for you to be my, my mentor. I said, hey, I'm, I'm honored that, that you asked me. Currently, I have little time, but let's find each other halfway. I said, let's do one session. Let's take an hour and then you can ask me anything you need in terms of your business, where you're going next. And we had an amazing conversation for an hour. She reached out cold over LinkedIn. Just make sure you take it first step. That's important. I love it. I just released an episode with a person who said that the way they got mentors was also through LinkedIn. But what his other friend did was he also said, if you give me time, I'll pay you $500. <laughs> <laughs> and he got James Clear on the call. So it works. It works sometimes. Yeah. Are there ways that you've found cold calling to be effective? Like certain things that they say? They make you more inclined to say yes, because your time is precious. 
for me, as long as people are authentic, then it's likely I'll take some time out of my schedule to help, but it has to be authentic. And before we wrap up, apart from doing all this, you also have a documentary. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. We produced and directed a documentary called Broken Chains. This started in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter movement in the US took off and people all over the world were protesting because George Floyd was murdered, Breonna Taylor. And I was in a position where a lot of my friends and colleagues in Singapore were asking how I was feeling about all the events in the US. I noticed that there was a lot of empathy for a Black person in Singapore. There are not many Black VCs in Asia. I think there's two, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it was that little. <laughs> yeah, it's really a few. And in those conversations, I also noticed that there was little understanding what it means to be Black in the professional setting. So I decided to write an article about it. And that article on Medium, it took off and a lot of people shared it, posted and, and reached out. Didn't um, you get like over 50 phone calls just from that article? Yeah, I think even more. It was, uh, I was talking to my wife about it yesterday. Like even she got phone calls. <laughs> so it was fairly intense. So one of the um, film producers in Singapore said, oh man, this article was so touching and moving. I want to make a short video about it. And I, I declined because I said, I don't feel comfortable making a film video about myself specifically around this topic. I said, but I'm very passionate about social justice and I'm passionate about the racial wealth gap and there's more equality across different communities. And specifically because I am black, I can speak about the black community. So he said, oh, that's an amazing idea. I said, let's find people that we can interview and do it sort of documentary style. And that's how we came about making this documentary that talks about the racial wealth gap and, and why there is so much inequality, even in my industry, in the venture industry, where only a very small percentage of the funding goes to, it is not just the Black community, it's a little percentage of the funding goes to the, the Latin community, a little percentage of funding goes to the female community. So there's just not enough funding equally spread, and um, we wanted to address it. So we made this documentary. It took us a little over a year to make it. Official premiere is going to be in April of this year. Yeah, we won six awards in the past year. So it's been a really intense emotional journey, but I'm so glad to be part of this project. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for your time. I love to end all of my interviews with the same questions. And the first one is this, do you feel like you have found your why? Yes, I have. Yeah. I think through life and, and through the different, you know, careers that I've had, I'm feeling in a position that my why is clear for me. I feel comfortable in, in that position as well. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think the most important one is contribute to an equal society where it doesn't matter what your background, gender, or belief is. As long as you are your authentic self, there's an opportunity for you to get access to whether it's a career, education, a healthy life, anything. I think background shouldn't matter. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think the most important qualities are knowing yourself, being able to lead and inspire others. And where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? Reach out, ask for mentorship. I think LinkedIn is, is still a very good platform to reach out to me. I'm relatively active. I do my postings and my articles on LinkedIn as well. So yeah, you can always find me on LinkedIn. And that was the end of episode 74. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismywhite.com forward slash 74. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a rating and review on any of the podcast platforms you're listening to this on right now. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting our very first NFT artist. 
She's a young Muslim mother from Malaysia whose very first NFT collector was the lead singer of Linkin Park and is also known to be a pioneer of the Malaysia NFT space. We are kicking off a mini NFT series here at So Does My Why. So if you've ever been curious about this strange new world of NFTs, cryptos, and all that jazz, stick around. I'm feeling my way around this space and I would love to go on this journey of discovery and learning with you. See you next Sunday.